intoxication. In OA, I have to allow time for my emotions and spiritual growth to catch up with the difference in body size. I need to earn my weight loss a day at a time and turn my ever-elusive goal weight over to the decision of my higher power. Through working an OA program, I am able to let go of the weight gracefully, and today let go of weight is a byproduct of my spiritual growth. By maintaining conscious contact with a power greater than myself, I am finally able to feel at peace while abstaining from compulsive eating. Our first speaker is David from Sherman Oaks, who will speak for 25 minutes. Hi, I'm David, Compulsible Reader. And um, I'm very glad to be here. Um, I didn't ask how long I would be sharing or any of that. And I thought, like a lot of times, you know, I'm used to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So i got to think. Um, and, and when I got the um, topic in the mail, uh, was asked to speak on here, uh, and when it talked about goal weight, uh, um, my first... Uh, reaction was I didn't like the topic because <laughs> I, I, I and, and the reason is I have a lot of issues with judgments in, in a way and out of a way because I think go away it's like a buzzword and it's a, and it's a word we use to beat other people and judge other people and I can't that doesn't work in my program I, I wear a size 34 pants I used to wear a size 32 pants, and, and I really believe that the difference in size is when I started judging. I, was, I really went through a period where I was, how come these people are gaining weight? And how come these people aren't thinner? And all of a sudden, I became a size 34 after that. And I, and I had to stop it. I had to focus on me and not other people. So when I heard the topic, when I saw it, I, I, I uh, had some problems with it. Um, and then I went to the reading where it came from and, and, and what our moderator just read right now. And, um, and I loved the reading. And I loved the topic based from the book because that's been my experience, that it's got to be slow. It's got to be absence and, and weight loss and, and body and all that stuff. It has to be one day at a time for me. And, and I had to adjust to it. So, and... And I have all kinds of great ideas what could work for everybody else and what people should do. And, what I, and I've been around. I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, June, I started away in June 1976. Um, I started abstaining sometime in October. I date my absence October 16th. Um, but it wasn't like I went on a diet. I just started calling in my food sometime in October to somebody to stop gaining weight, and I count that as the beginning of my absence, but it wasn't like a big formal anything, and uh, and and I lost about about 30 pounds or so in a way, but I had been as heavy as about 80 pounds overweight, maybe more, and I came in when I was 15 years old, so some of the weight too, only losing 30 pounds, I was going through puberty too at the same time, so I outgrew some of the weight. So 
just to give you a little background, I've been around a long time, and I've seen a lot, and I have a lot of judgments and a lot of what I think could work for everybody else. But all I can share is my experience, strength, and hope. And, and I really believe, especially in OA, more than almost any other 12-step program, our paths are so individual because our food obsessions are individual, our, our trigger foods, what works for different people. And, 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 and so I have to just share what worked for me and what will work for me may not work for everybody else. This program works for everybody, and the 12 steps can work for anybody who wants it. But how we work it, how we work our food plan, how we define our absence, what our weight is, you know, and what we're comfortable, what, what's a healthy weight is different for everybody, and, and it's not up to me to tell other people. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share my experience, strength, and hope, and somehow it's lasted 29, what is it, 29 years. Um, and and I'm still here. And if I go out and binge tomorrow and gain my weight, you know, I've had really wonderful 29 years. I mean, I've had experiences in my life, be really, you know, like, like Roseanne's book, Beyond Your Wildest Dreams. I mean, the kind of experiences and the kind of life I've had, I would have never, it's a, far and above what I could ever have hoped for. Um, so... And what gives me hope is I get to share the panel with somebody who's got, we were talking the last time we spoke together, Maxine had doubled my time. And, and that's so important in this program. There's people who go before me and, and, and that are still here. And, and coming to this convention yesterday, I, I was away for a couple of days on a trip with my family. And, and we come in last night and I start seeing people I've seen for years I've known and, and from service and from from this meeting and that meeting, and I hadn't seen in years, and that's what's so wonderful about this program. That's what's so wonderful about conventions, the fellowship, and seeing people, and focusing on the people who are still here, and and and, uh, and the hope that it gives me. And I and I still need this program after 29 years. You know, it's like it's like brushing my teeth. You know, it only works if I do it every day. You know, I can't say, well, I've been brushing my teeth for 29 years, so I can stop now and it won't matter. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't end. You know, it changes, you know, just like my teeth need different, uh, you know, things when I go to the dentist and stuff and different, to, you know, uh, but I still need to be here. I need to do it one day at a time for the rest of my life. And I'm so grateful that this program is here and thrives. When, when I, started in a way, I'll tell you a little bit, uh, real quick about what it used to be like. Um, I was a fat kid from day one. I mean, I, can, I only remember myself being very, very heavy, um, only feeling fat and ugly about myself. That was my first self, um, self-esteem. You know, there was no self-esteem. It was, it was just feeling always like fat, ugly, and stupid as a little kid, as a little baby. Um, that's how I felt about myself. I didn't feel lovable. I didn't feel um, like other kids wanted to play with me. And it got worse. And, 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 um, and food, was my own, food was my comfort. And I didn't realize that the food was making it worse. You know, the food was, was, um, was just... Uh, it was the enemy, but I thought it was my friend. And maybe it kept me alive because I didn't pick up any other compulsions. 
and I went through a lot of really bad depressions and mental illness as a, as a child, and maybe the food kept me alive, but it, it also made, you know, it just made things worse. But I had to always have food to anesthetize myself. And, uh, and the way I was a compulsive overeater, I didn't binge, I didn't have these huge binges and then eat normal and like that. I ate all the time. All the time I had to have food. I, I've, I've lately uh, described it as like an IV drip. You know, you always have to have it going. And I always had to be eating, always had to be grabbing food. And um, I remember nobody helped my mom clean up or do any kind of housework or anything. It was just me and my brother, my dad, and my mom. And so my mom was stuck with all the housework except for cleaning up the kitchen table. I volunteered for that. I was a good helper because I could get my food, the food I really wanted. You know, while I was eating dinner, I was only thinking about how much food I could take, what was left over and what I could take. And after I was doing that, I was only thinking, what can I sneak into my bedroom so I could have food in the bedroom and nobody would notice, you know? And if, when I was in, while I was in school, all I was thinking about lunchtime. You know, right after lunch, all I was thinking about was uh, when I come home, what I can have. You know, it was just a constant, constant, constant thinking about food. And it was more than the weight. I mean, I, you know, as a child, and I didn't realize the two things were both hand in hand, but it was the constant obsession with food, you know, that was, um, and, and I've met people who didn't have the weight issues that I had and still are compulsive overeaters and, and food ran their life. So I don't think it necessarily, I, I've really learned in this program, it's just, it's, the weight is just part of the symptom. But I would still be a compulsive overeater and I still would need this program even if I didn't have the weight issue. Because if I could take a magic pill to get me thin, but I still had that mind and I still had to eat all the time, I would just be just like an alcoholic, you know, but I just wouldn't have the symptom. And, and I can't live like that. Even with absence and working this program, it's enough thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? You know, I, I mean, you know, even with this program, and even after 29 years, there's days that, you know, that the head's still going, but it's, it's nothing like it used to be. You know, this is a mild, worrying about what I'm going to eat for lunch, am I going to have a salad or a sandwich, is a lot, lot healthier than how much can I binge with nobody noticing, how much ice cream, you know, how many slivers of this or that can I take, you know, and, and, and stuff. But, but that's what this compulsion is for me. And uh, um, I never lost weight, you know, at all as a kid until I turned 10 years old. And, um, and I'll give you a little background. Um, my mother was born in 1930, right in the heart of the Depression. And, she, and, uh, and so she always, always... And my grandparents, her parents were uh, Russian immigrants at the turn of the century. And my mother and my grandfather lived with us. And my mother always had a kitchen like the Russian army was going to come at any minute. I mean, cupboards, I should say, stacked. There was no room to put any more food. She always made it so there was no, and she was a compulsive reader, and she always made it so there was no room to put any more food. And she never baked, but there was tons of bakery stuff and, you know, this and that and, and um, and we never, you know, God forbid we should ever go hungry, but there was that mentality, and my grandfather's mentality. Uh, he was he was not heavy, but he was a compulsive overeater and always talking about food and always obsessed about food, and I, it could have been his background. And I don't blame those backgrounds for why I'm, 
I was a compulsive reader. My brother was born in the same family, and he was lanky, tall, and thin, you know, and completely opposite of me growing up. So it was just that I had it, and then I picked it up with all this stuff. My father was a Holocaust survivor who um, then after the Holocaust, he went to Israel where, you know, there was very little food, and he would tell stories of finding it, you know, getting a chicken and hiding it under his jacket to take it to his sister and stuff. And so he had a mentality. He was... He was normal weight when I was growing up, but he had this thing about when he did eat, it was behind people's back. It was sneaky eating. All of a sudden, there'd be a basket of fruit missing, and it was him. And, and, and he had all kinds of issues on that. And when I was 10 years old, my father took me back to Israel to go to a wedding, and I was a fat, chubby kid. And, I was, and also, the mental went with it because I was so afraid of dying. I didn't believe in God. I was sure, like, when I was 10 years old, we were going to crash, we were going to get hijacked, the World War III was going to start at any minute, and again, the food anesthetized it all. And I did, but on that trip, we were there for a month, and I lost weight. My godfather, my dad's cousin was with us, and he taught me yoga, and, and, and they tried to control my eating, and it worked. I was 10 years old, and we also went to Europe for a couple weeks, and they only fed me one meal a day, and, and, and when I went to Israel I, at my aunt's house, she was making me food. She wanted to fatten me up. She wanted me to go home even fatter so she could show the, my mom and the family that she loved me. Um, but I couldn't eat her cooking. It wasn't my mother's cooking. So I lost weight on that trip. And at 10 years old, I said this, and I came back, and everybody said how great I looked because I lost like 20 pounds or something. And at that time, I was at 10 years old, when my mother was shopping for that trip, I remember her having to buy men's sizes. I probably wore underwear bigger than I am now. It was at least a size 34, 36 as a 10-year-old, you know, and husky. And I'm not a big, tall person now, but they were all saying I was going to be a football player because I was so big and, and the husky, you know, that, that I had a completely different look. Anyway, I came back and I wanted, I wanted to – I loved that attention. I loved losing weight, you know, the feeling – and so I really wanted to, and my mom told me about diets. That's, I learned about diets when I came back. And we were, I was going to do it. And my mother was going to cook all my favorite foods. And, you know, that first diet, I couldn't make it the first day. It was, it was I think, the Stillman's where you only eat protein. And, and I, I was so looking forward to all the food, my mother, all the meats my mother was going to make me. And by that night, I went to bed like at 7 o'clock at night because I couldn't stand the head going about thinking about food. And I woke up like an hour later and told my mom, I need something. And as soon as I had a piece of bread or something not on, and that was it for the diet. And that's how my diets went. You know, I'd eat one thing off it like after a few days, and then I could eat everything. And then my weight, that's when I really started gaining weight. The dieting and trying to control my weight made it even worse. And then when I was 12 years old, Twelve years old, my mother went to OA. She was she was told like she had six months to live because she had diabetes and heart disease and all this stuff and hypertension. And she was only like 40-something at the time. I mean, she was probably younger than I am now. And she had like six months to live, she was told, because of what she was doing to her body. And she never got away, but she abstained for a while. You know, she'd abstained for a month or so and whatever. She lived to be 65, so maybe it helped you know, and whatever it was, but she was, she was the poster child for this program because she wanted to live. She wanted to be there for her family, but the disease was stronger. The disease was just too strong, and that's where I come from. Um, and, but I thought OA, you know, I went to a few meetings and with her, and OA wasn't going to be for me because I'm one day going to wake up, have the desire to lose weight, and then I won't be like you people. 
And, uh, and then fast forward in 1976, my mother, there was a convention at the L.A. Marriott, a big OA World Service convention, and that got my mother to start coming back to OA because she heard about this convention. And those days, they didn't have all these events, so a convention was a big deal back then. And it got my mother back on. It got her back with some OA friends. And one of them, who had been a friend before OA and had a son, a son my age, said, you know, uh, Judy's son is going to start going to this team meeting in Beverly Hills. You know, do you want to go? And that was my – and I said, okay. And then my mom said, you know, me and my dad have been – my mother says to me, me and my dad have been talking about how fat you're getting, and so I'm glad you're going to go. And that normally would have said, screw you, I'm not. But there was a higher power because as soon as school as school was over in 76, a couple weeks later I started going to that Wednesday meeting. And I was about to go in high school, and, you know, I wasn't going to do OA. I, I, it was just going to be, you know, just for the summer, just to appease my parents. OA wasn't for, for me. But you know what? I kept coming, and there was something in there. And, and when I, start, I started high school that also, and I was binging at the student store, and the only thing, and that meeting wasn't like a structured meeting. We all just talked more like fellowship, you know, in a circle, and we all, but it, it worked for us. And, and it, except it worked for them, not me at that time, because I didn't talk, but they all talked. And I was starting to binge on the on the cookies at the student store, and I just wanted to, I had an idea at that time, if I can just stay the same weight, maybe I'll outgrow some of it, you know, but I'll just stay this weight, but I kept gaining weight, this was started in junior high, I'll just maintain this weight, you know, and then I'll, and then I gain five, okay, now I'll stay, you know, but it composed, you make all these resolutions, didn't work, so, um, so I asked for help in about October, how do I stop binging? And they said, why don't you call in what you're going to eat every day to your friend who you're going to this meeting with? And that's when I date my absence. I didn't, you know, I was eating desserts. I was surprised, surprised working at the student cafeteria, um, you know, and I'd say whatever they serve, but I'm not going to go back for seconds. Or I'd commit whatever my mom makes for dinner, but I won't go back after dinner. You know, I when I came home from school, I'd have a piece of fruit or something. But, so it wasn't, it wasn't about just eating three meals a day, even though it was basically three meals a day. Later, I started counting the calories um, that I was eating. Uh, but somehow, I started losing weight. You know, I was only going to do this to stop gaining weight, but when you take out all the rationalizations and committing to what I was going to do, and then the, I started losing weight. And then the next year, they started, in 1977, a second team meeting, and me and this friend who I was calling my food were going and nobody else, so we kept going. And then I didn't want to stop do, calling in my food and doing what I was doing because if I stopped, that meeting would have died. And then I went to the intergroup and I just went to announce this new team meeting and got elected to their intergroup board. It probably works to say nowadays too, some unsuspecting, fairly new person comes and they get rooked into service. But you know, that service kept me here. I'm, you know, another 28 years since then, I'm still here because of that service. Because that service, then I really felt I couldn't stop abstaining. or I didn't even call it absence the first year. I didn't take a candle. But I couldn't stop doing what I was doing or else I would let more people down. And we started teen retreats and, and stuff. And that service and that fellowship kept me coming. I didn't believe in God, by the way. I said, you know, that's good for my mom and all you people. But I didn't want anything to do with the God part. It was too painful. And I was too depressed to, to, to get into my head again and have to start thinking about God. But, you know, by that second year, I was driving to a meeting with some friends I had made, and, some, and somebody said to the other, 
how can anybody not believe in God in all our lives in a year? Look at all of us, how our lives have changed. And that was my spiritual experience. There had to be a higher power. There had to be. Now, fast forward, you know, all these years later, sometimes I don't know if there's a, a traditional God in the way that I felt that minute, you know, when I had that, came to that realization. And, and I don't know if there's a God like when I was a child, but there's some higher power that, I, I, that my life, my experiences can't deny. It's not anything I read, anybody told me, but my experiences in this program, and I believe that's how this program works, we find a higher power that gives us the strength over this compulsion that without it we can't do. And I'm still here, and I'm, a, and I'm at a normal weight, and I have a normal life. Um, and I'll tell you about my life and how it is, and, and hopefully that's part of the topic. Um, you know, I, I've been at the same job for 25 years. I work in a bank, and me, afraid of people, I'm with people all day long. I mean, that's, that's what my life is about, you know, and, and I can do it. If sometimes I feel like I'm on a tight rope, you know, walking, and if I thought about how I can do all this, I would fall, but I just do it. And, and I take this program to my work with my employees, with my customers, and, and, I'm, and I'm successful. And, 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 and it's not the material, it's the spiritual. It's that I can take this program into my work. And, and the material so, so seems to follow, ironically. I'm married to a lady that uh, I met through friends who's also in this program. And, and um, we've been together a long time. She's in this room, so I'll be careful. But, <laughs> but, but we have a, a life that works. I mean, you know, and we have a house, and we're grateful for what we have. We're grateful. I just spent time with a relative who was, you know, we were, we were in Catalina for two days with my kids and my sister-in-law and, and my nephew and niece, and we're in a paradise for overnight, and a friend of ours visiting, who's in way, and we're in like a paradise. That they gave us this place cheap, but it was like an $800 beach house right in Catalina, and, this, and my sister-in-law was like bitching about things, and I'm thinking, this is paradise. This is what we work for. We've got to be grateful. You know, and my kids, I have twins seven-and-a-half-year-olds, and my son's autistic, and we had a nice, calm life for many, 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 many years, and this is like upside down. If anybody saw them downstairs last night before grandma and a babysitter took them away, you know? But I love, I mean, and sometimes it's overwhelming, but I have a higher power in this program that I can abstain and, and work my program and learn to enjoy them anyway, and when I'm not a perfect parent, I get back on track, you know? And, and there's the balance. The balance is we haven't had a weekend away from them in over a year, so I can be here, we can be here for two days, and, and they can do what they do. And then, I, but I was for them in Catalina, you know, 48 hours. It was just about them, you know. And that's how this program works. That's how I can weigh the same because it it's not about the food. Whenever I try to tighten my food and figure it out, my pants get tighter. You know, a couple of years, I started exercising. I just want to, you know, add this in my last couple of minutes. I started exercising when I turned 30 because my same absence, my clothes were getting tighter. You know, and God knows how to get to me because I needed the healthy. I was so unhealthy. And I just said, if I just walk once a day, that's good enough. You know, and now it's 14 years later, and I usually walk every day, and I go to the gym three, four times a week, and we have a, an exercise thing at the house. Every day I give myself one, once a week I cannot exercise, but usually I don't even take that. And it's not hard. I mean, it's not a lot. Sometimes it's 18 minutes, you know, on a bike or something, but it's something. And if we're on a trip and there's no thing, then it's just the walking. But I, and I'm healthier. It's not about the weight. 
you know, and, but it's, I'm healthier and I like myself. And, and that's what this program has given me because I hated myself, like I said at the beginning, and I like myself and love myself enough that I want, that's what gives me the strength to abstain when the compulsion comes on, you know, where I don't, I get up and I'm too tired to exercise, but I do it anyway because there's something that I want to take care of myself. And that's what the 12 steps and this higher power. Uh, I'm not a religious person, but we do with my kids. Last night we didn't because of this, but we normally do Shabbat every, every Friday with them. And we have people to our house on Friday nights, to, to, you know, at least two, three times a month. So my kids grew up with spirituality, not what I was like forced to go to Hebrew school, but my parents never went to synagogue even. And we go, we take them, uh, if people don't come, we go to synagogue on Friday nights. So my kids have spirituality, not not what I had, which was culture and forced things, but there was no joy, there was no fun to it, there was no God. I want, you know, I want a different kind of life uh, for my kids and, and for me, and there's just a difference, you know, and also I could look at my life and bitch about my autistic son who's a handful, because he's not, he's not an autistic that sits in a corner. He's hyper and very smart and He's funny, but he, anyway, he's in your face all the time, and I can bitch about that, and, and with work, you know, my career's not going the way I think it should be going, and my family's not the way they should be, and, you know, and the house isn't perfect, and I could be, I could find, and I could be, dep- I can tell you a story you guys could be crying in about how both my parents died, you know, my, my mom never saw the kids, and my dad died when they were a year. I could have everybody crying, you know, and I could be crying, and I could be very depressed, and I have that tendency, but this program gives me where most of the time I'm grateful at the house I have, at the kids I have, at the parents as crazy as they were, and what I think they're responsible for a lot of my craziness, but they gave me, they did love me unconditionally, and I can give that to my kids. And so I look at the good things my parents gave me. And so that's what this program's given me. I have to focus on what I'm grateful, the wonderful things, the wonderful friends. We have, there's several people in here that are part of a fellowship that I have in my life through this program, and there's others outside of this program that just, that we have the circle of support and friends and family, and it's because of the life this program's given me, and I can, and it's because of this program, and I can put on the same, you know, I've been now size 34 for 20-something years, you know, and, 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 and it's one day at a time. You know, it's one meal, it's sometimes a struggle, a meal at a time at times, and other times it's easy, but it's it's one day at a time. I can't do anything about my weight about tomorrow. I can only do today, you know, and and, uh, and I'm just really grateful, if you can't tell by what I'm saying in, in the last, the thing I read in the for, in the for today that I just want to close, if, if it, what it says at the beginning, if it was not for the pain, I wouldn't be here. Only when the pain of compulsive overeating became worse than the pain it was intended to kill, did I become willing to abandon the pretense of controlling my life. And that's what it is. It took all that pain, all the pain of growing up, all the depression, all the, it, my life not working to get me where I am today. And so I don't have to be depressed or worried about, you know, any of that stuff. And, 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 and any pain I go through, it gets me to where I need to be. So I thank you all for listening to me, for being here. And I'm just, again, so grateful for this program. Thank you. All right. Our next speaker is Maxine from Van Nuys, who will speak for 25 minutes.
Hi, everybody. I'm Maxine, a compulsive overeater. Thank you, David. It's really uh, a joy to be on the same podium with David. We did this, uh, we were trying to figure out how many years ago. And uh, he's still here, and I'm still here, and we're still abstaining and still maintaining our normal weight, which is wonderful and a miracle in itself. Um, a little bit about myself, some of the figures to get out of the way. I came into Overeaters Anonymous in September of 1961. Um, <clears throat> out of control, uh, just having had my second child, just having had what we used to call in those days a nervous breakdown. <clears throat> and uh, I had, I had uh, lost some weight when that was happening uh, because I couldn't figure out how to eat and cry at the same time. So... Um, when I started to feel better after being on the psychiatrist's couch for three times a week for about six weeks, um, I started to feel better, and of course my appetite returned with a vengeance. And so I was eating everything that was not latched down to the floor, and I was looking for a cheap way to lose weight. And my mother had found a small article in the in the local paper that had talked about a new uh, group for losing weight was being formed, and it was called Overeaters Anonymous. And I called the number, and uh, they told me there was what the meeting was, but it was at night. And uh, to give you a little idea of uh, how fearful a person I was, um, I couldn't go because I didn't drive at night. Uh, and so a couple of weeks later, that same secretary called me back and said, would you mind picking somebody else up to come to a meeting? We have a young woman who weighs 300 pounds who doesn't have a car. And I said, Sure. So my codependency brought me to my first OA meeting. <laughs> I was willing to take somebody else to that meeting, but I wasn't good enough to come by myself, and I was too afraid to come by myself. Um, I don't like to talk too much about what I used to be like because I was just like all the rest of you. Uh, the stories may be sound different, or the places may sound different, or the names of the, or the parents or the kids may sound different, but we're all the same. I came from a, a dysfunctional family, surprise, surprise. My mother was a compulsive overeater and a compulsive gambler. Uh, my, my father was the invisible man. I, I found uh, food very early. It was uh, very comforting. It was the one thing I had uh, access to, and it took the edge off. Um, my childhood was not terrible, but it wasn't joyful. Uh, and when it was painful, I ate. And I snuck food. I stole food. I stole money. My father was a cab driver. He used to drive at night, have his pants hanging on the knob of the of the of the uh, closet. And I learned at a very early age how to get into that pocket, take out the change without making a sound. And so I used that money to buy food. And uh, like many of the other uh, other people here who have found that one of their first jobs is in the food industry. When I was in elementary school, I was the candy monitor. Very convenient, very convenient. We didn't get paid food, but we got two candy bars for um, selling candy at the lunchtime, and I took my share and somebody else's. So I uh, was not only a compulsive overeater, but I was a compulsive shoplifter before I came to this program. And I found for myself that compulsive overeating and shoplifting for me went together. And um, it all had a lot for my shoplifting. It came, it came uh, to me, or not came to me, I did it because I didn't feel worthy enough to pay for the things that I really wanted to have. Uh, and so I was the fat like David at, at 10. I started my first diet. My mother took me to Children's Hospital, and I can still to this day taste um, this, the taste of scrambled eggs made on an iron pan without any fat. 
it tastes horrible. And I guess that's why today I don't like eggs at all. I don't like that. But I went on my first diet. I weighed 100 pounds at 10. Uh, I lost 20 pounds, and that I uh, learned over the years. I could lose the weight very easily. I'm a very good dieter. I can lose it quickly, but I can gain it twice as fast. I always said I always lost weight, and I always gained it back with interest, always more than when I took it off. So I, my eating was uh, up and down. I was a yo-yo yo-yo dieter, but at the very end, I was just yoing. I, I just I couldn't do it anymore. And so that's when I found Overeaters Anonymous. And my first meeting I, that I walked into, I, I found um, uh, Roseanne, our co-founder there, who I thought that's who I want to be like. That's what I want to look like. She looked like a movie star. She was thin, and I said, that's what I want to be. But um, I, they gave me some literature. Um, I thought, well, what do these steps have to do with losing weight? Uh, I, uh, I got a big book, and I thought, this is the silliest thing I've ever read. What does it have to do with losing weight? I had no idea. Before I came to Overeaters Anonymous, I must tell you that I was unconscious. Um, people say there were, the, one of the speakers before talked about walking through their life being a sleepwalker. I was just unconscious. I have a very poor memory of most of my childhood and most of my um, youthful years because I was uh, anesthetized all the time with food. I was just drugged out. Food of choice, that was my drug of choice, and that's what I did. Um, my top weight was 192. Uh, I came into Overeaters Anonymous not at my top weight. I came in at 150 on my way up. And um, interesting enough, as long as uh, with my shoplifting, I was also a compulsive liar. Um, instead of giving people my normal starting weight when I was in this program, I, I soon learned that the more weight you lost in this program, the more applause you got. So therefore, I decided to up my weight seven pounds so that I would get more appreciation or more applause. Why I ever came with seven pounds, I don't know, except I thought, well, it was a... It was a an ambiguous enough of weight so that people really couldn't tell if I was that fat or not or that low or not. So uh, for the first two and a half years, I gave my beginning weight at 157 pounds. And I've been maintaining my weight between 125 and 127. No, today is 128. Um, I just came back from two weeks uh, on a trip, and sometimes that happens, um, and that's okay. Um, and I've been doing that since April of 1961. My uh, abstinence started uh, in April of 1961, 41 years this year, by the grace of God. I have um, this. This subject is very dear to my heart: obtainable and maintain uh, um, a normal weight. Uh, I don't like the word go weight myself because I don't know what go weight means. When I think of go weight, I think of the two things at the end of a football field. I don't know what that's about. But I think normal weight. Uh, my normal weight is, is uh, between 125 and 127, 128. Um, I wear the same size clothes I wore um, when, I first, when I first started to uh, have lost all my weight. Um, I have things in my closet that I only get rid of because I'm tired of them or they're worn out. Uh, and it has been uh, by this program. Um, my first sponsor told me that without the 12 steps, this program is just a cheap diet club. And that's what I was looking for when I came here. I didn't come here to get spiritual. I didn't come here to get emotionally better. I came here to get thin. And I wanted to do it the fastest and the cheapest way possible. Uh, I didn't know what I was in for. 
Uh, I was in for the ride of my life. I was in for learning things about myself that I didn't think I would ever want to look at. Um, sometimes when I talk to my husband about asking him about, well, wouldn't you really like to know what the, what the real reason is that you do that? And his answer to me is, I don't want to open up that can of worms. And I didn't want to either. To tell you the truth, I didn't see any uh, analogy between what I thought or what I felt or what my spiritual condition was uh, compared to what my weight was. And now I know it has, it has the utmost um, analogy to that. Uh, I started uh, my first couple of years in this program. I did this program cafeteria style. I didn't have a sponsor. Uh, I did the first part of step one and the last part of step 12. Uh, I looked at step three and thought that's not for me, but at that time, Roseanne had taken all God out of the 12 steps, so it was all right with me. It had something about checking with your doctor if you wanted to start the new uh, food plan, and that's what I did, and that's the kind of result I got until I really began to, in the first, well, it was two and a half years before I found my first sponsor. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but that's what I did, because we didn't have a lot of sponsors in those early days. When I came to Overeaters Anonymous, there was two meetings in OA. There was one in West L.A. and one in the San Fernando Valley. And six months after I, I came into OA, we moved to the San Fernando Valley, and then we had two meetings in the San Fernando Valley, which was really big, great stuff. And we, we went to uh, AA meetings. And my first sponsor was an AA, and she said, if you want to have what she called permanent sobriety, because she was using the same terminology that AA said, then you need to work the 12 steps, 1 through 12, as they are written, not as I thought I should do them. And so I did start working the, the, the 12 steps. I had to admit that I was powerless over food and that my life was unmanageable and, um, and that I couldn't do it myself. I had tried all those years. I was uh, 30 years old when I came into this program. Uh, considering that I have 41 years of abstinence and I'm only now 39, that's really pretty good. <laughs> but... Um, I had to admit that those 30 years I hadn't been able to keep the weight off. And so I had to admit that I was powerless over food and that my life had become unmanageable. And then step two that I had to take said that I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, I hadn't been able to do it myself, but I didn't have a higher power when I came here. But my sponsor said, you believe that I've done it? And I said, yes. And she says, you believe that I have a higher power? And I said, yes. And she said, well then use me as your higher power, which I did for a very long time. I had faith that she could do it and that if she could do it, there was a possibility that I could do it too. And so I hung on to her. I really cleaved on to her. And anything she told me to do, I was willing to follow all, and what she had to say to me. She says, when all else fails, follow directions. And I was willing to do that. I was willing to do what she did and and, and follow what she said. And at that time, she said, you need to learn how to work these steps. And there weren't a lot of people that had worked the steps in 1964. And so she sent a whole group of us down to a, um, an old, um, not an old, but it was an AA meeting down at the Third and Palms in Los Angeles called APOR, A-P-O-A-R, which at that time stood for Applied Principles of Alcoholic Recovery and now stands for Applied Principles of Addictive Recovery. And uh, the man who ran that meeting had written a book for alcoholics who couldn't recover because they were, they, were, they were real alcoholics. They needed something tougher than the 12 steps written in the big book. And so his book was about that thick and had, I don't know, 200 questions for the fourth step or something. And I was willing to do that because I really wanted to take this weight off and keep it off. 
Um, and so the interesting thing about that meeting was that you couldn't speak at that meeting until you had get written the fourth step and given it away. So um, I had taken the third step, and the third step said uh, I was made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood them or her. And she said, well, that really means that you've only made a decision, which doesn't really mean anything until you take action. Because a decision without action is fantasy. And so I can decide a lot of things. I can, I can decide uh, that I'm going to take a trip to New York tomorrow, and I can think about it, but I don't really get to New York unless I go and buy a ticket on an airplane or a train and get on and then get to New York. And then I have really made a commitment and a decision to finally do that. So she said, your, your commitment here is if you really turn your will and your life over the care of God, then you take the fourth step. And that was really, really scary for me. The fourth step was meant that I had to look at all those, those guilts and all those things that I was afraid to ever tell another human being. And the worst thing for me as I looked, as, as I looked back at it was that I had premarital sex. Well, whoopee-doo today. I mean... <laughs> But in 1964, and a girl that had been raised in the 40s and 50s, that was a big thing. And I was guilty, and I was guilty about all the money I had stolen and all the places I had stolen it from. I didn't have such a big resentment list because I was a people pleaser. I mean, I never wanted to do anything that you didn't want to do, and I was the last person I spoke to. If you wanted to go to this restaurant, I went to that restaurant. If you wanted to see this movie, I wanted to see that movie. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't know, have any idea who I really was. I only knew that I wanted you to love me and like me, and I thought the way to do that was to do what you did, what you wanted to do. And so for me, I had to look at all of that, and I was so ashamed of the things I had written down in my inventory that I didn't even give them to, away to my OA sponsor. I gave them away to, my a, to a person in AA. Because I knew that I would never be able to look at that person in the face if they really knew who I was. I was really afraid if anybody really knew who I was on the inside, you wouldn't really care for me. But when I gave that fifth step away, something happened to me. Uh, on the way home, I felt like I had dropped a 20-pound bag of potatoes off of my back. I felt so wonderful. It was the first time in my life that I ever did something 100%. I had followed directions 100%. I hadn't cheated. Was I, when I was going to school, I was also a cheater. I got caught my first semester at UCLA. I got caught cheating, and I got cheating because I hadn't studied for the test because my philosophy in life was always to do the least amount of work and get the most results. So I hadn't studied, and that guy down there I thought knew more than I did, so I copied off of his paper, and he was dumber than I was. So we both, we both failed, and I had exactly the same wrong answers that he did. And I was told that if I ever got caught cheating again, I would be expelled. So I had stopped. I stopped doing that. But that's what I did. All of my life, I did everything half-assed. I was a great half-asser. Uh, I won't bore you with my eight-year Afghan. I mean, I started it. I started it, and it had seven strips, and I did five, and it sat there for seven years. I never finished it until I got into OA and finished my steps. I finished, finally finished that Afghan. Uh, but that's how I did things. I never did anything completely. I got up right up to the very end and then stopped. And so this was a commitment I had made to myself, that I was going to do these steps to the best of my ability 100%. And so I gave that fifth step away. Uh, I was asked if I wanted to have these defects of character removed. I said yes, but I lied. 
because I really liked judgment and criticism. They always made me feel better about myself. And I've been working on that for the last, you know, 40 years. And it's better than it was. But I realized that I had asked God then in the seventh step to remove my defects of character. And he did. Not all of them, but he did remove two of them. And one of them was really to eat compulsively. And the second one is not to steal. And, and I was so, I can't even begin to tell you what a burden that was to drop, that I didn't have to go into a store and decide whether I was going to steal something or pay for it. Um, and I was scared to do the seventh and eighth step because I knew there was going to be amends to be made. But I also knew that I only had to do things one at a time. And I only had to do things when I was willing to do them. And my sponsor said, all you have to do is make a decision to do one amend a week. And so I started out making financial amends, which were really scary for me. But I was really willing to go to any length. And, of course, I had to be very dramatic about it. I had a big financial amend to make to the Broadway department store, which was in the Miracle Mile, which is no longer there, probably because of a lot of customers like me. But... Um, <laughs> I, before I left, I said to my husband, now listen, you be, be prepared. I may make a phone call. You may have to come up post bail. And, I, and, I, and I, it sounds laughable now, but I didn't know anybody in 1964 that had made a financial amend. And so going over the hill, I had been told to make an appointment with the manager of the store, not to talk to any, just any salesperson. And I had my hot little check in my hand and scared to death driving over the hill into L.A. When I got there... The manager of the store had been called away, and so I didn't know what to do about it, so I went to a, a manager of one of the departments, and I told him my story that I was, you know, in a self-help program, blah, blah, blah. I was making my life better. Here's my check for what I stole. They didn't want to take my check. And I said, you have to, ha you have to take it, otherwise I won't get better. <laughs> and so they took my check, and then they, they marched me around the store to, showing everybody that I had been the first person and the history of that store who had ever come, who had ever come in person to make a, a financial amend. They had had people leave merchandise outside the door, or they had people who had um, sent checks anonymously, but they had not had anybody do that. And I had, had to make a lot of financial amends, and I have made them all. Some of the places I couldn't uh, make the financial amends to because they were no longer there, or I couldn't find them. And so my, my living amends is to, is to make um, my contributions to charity. And that's the way I can continue to make my financial amends. Um, the last three steps of this program are called the maintenance steps, but for me, they are the living steps. I continue to take personal inventory every day. I, I, I do uh, pray and meditate almost on a daily basis. I wish I could say daily, uh, but I don't. And the last step is really a gift that this program gives me. This program gives me the gift of being able to give something away to somebody else that nobody else can give them. And about 15 years ago, maybe it's 20 years ago now, I was at a workshop where we had uh, recommitted ourselves to um, working the steps. And uh, one of the questions at the end of this um, uh, fourth step was, if you die today, uh, uh, what would you like on your tombstone? And um, it said it was an optional question. And I said, oh, no, I don't want to do anything like that. Uh, I'd have to think about it, and I never like to think. So uh, it was like, you know, when there's a pink elephant in the, and you think about pink elephants, you can't think about anything else. So the whole week it bugged me. And so I finally came up with the idea that 
If I died today, it would probably say Maxine, a loving mother, a wife, daughter, whatever. But if I died today, I really would like to say, I would like it to say that Maxine, she made a difference in other people's lives. Because that's what this program has done for me. It's given me the ability to pass on what I've learned in this program. And this program has given me the ability to obtain and maintain my normal weight. Um, I have a problem with the word abstinence. Because people want to know, what is your abstinence? Um, and then people get that mixed up, what is your food plan? What is your plan of eating? Um, my abstinence is to do what I have to do today in order to obtain and maintain my normal weight. That's what, that's what my abstinence is. And I believe that if I'm not at my normal weight and, I, and I'm fooling around with food, then I'm, I'm, I'm kidding myself. I have a, a spiritual teacher who says that when you're not being honest with yourself, you're bullshitting yourself, and that's, those are her spiritual words, not mine. And I think the hardest thing for me uh, has been to be honest with myself. And I, the first place I have to be honest with myself is with my food. And I have to do that on a daily basis. Uh, I do everything uh, to be responsible for my food daily. I still to this very day write my food down every single day. I write it down and I write down the calories and I write down my weight that I, have, that I am at every single day. And I make myself responsible to myself. I don't, I don't have to report that to anybody else. But that's what I do because it's important for me to obtain and maintain my weight. Because if I don't, then the rest of my program falls apart. If I'm not abstaining, the rest of my program really falls apart. And I think that that's what Overeaters Anonymous is about for me. It isn't about becoming emotionally better, which I have become. It isn't about becoming spiritually fit, which I am much better at than I ever was. But it is about the whole three things, because if I'm not abstaining, I'm not in contact with my higher power, and I'm not, I'm not emotionally honest and, and fit with myself. And so this program has taught me that I, I need to be honest with myself on all three levels. And I've, done, I've gone a lot of places and done a lot of other things besides Overeaters Anonymous. I would be less than truthful if I said that I got all of my, um, my recovery here. But I have, I have used every resource that has been available to me to, to grow spiritually and emotionally. Um, I've, I've, gone and, I've gone to a lot of different places. I, had a, I was listening to a, a fifth step the other day. And a, a sponsor said to me, well, what is your, your spiritual persuasion? And I said, well, I've gone a lot of places and done a lot of things spiritually. I was in a spiritual instruction for 15 years. I, I study with a spiritual teacher. I've gone to my temple and, and learned things that I needed to learn there. And uh, I've, I've taken a little bit of everything that I have found that's comfortable for me. And I said, I guess I'm just a spiritual mutt. And that's and I had never used that expression before, and I and I that's that's kind of what I am. I am a spiritual mutt. I've taken I don't fit in any one little in one little category, uh, and I love that because religion has nothing to do with spirituality. I mean, the dogma and the traditions are wonderful, and everything and every religion, but if it isn't in my heart, my my personal religion never always spoke to my head, but never to my heart. I could never get the two, two together. And so this is the place that I've learned that it's okay to go and do different things and, and not have to agree with everything and take what you want here and leave the rest. And I've done that with the rest of my life. This program has given me innumerable gifts. I can't even begin to think, as, as David has said, the kind of life I live today. 
I have a wonderful husband. We've married almost 49 years this year. My second time around, my first my first husband was a waffle. Um, you know, when a waffle is, you know, the first one you throw away because that's just your, you know, one that doesn't work out so well. Uh, and um, I have two wonderful, grown, beautiful daughters who I have a wonderful relationship with. They're, um, I'm grateful because I wasn't the, great, the greatest mother in the world, even in this program. When my kids were growing up, I was always angry, and I never knew why. I never knew why I was angry until my grandson was born eight years ago. And I was babysitting him, and he was crying. And I picked him up, and I carried him around, and I burped him, and I tried to feed him, and I tried to coat hook, and he wouldn't have any of it. He was just crying his head off, and I got furious. I got furious. And I had to put him down and start to pray about it. And it came, and I asked God, why this going on? Because that was the same feeling I had when I was raising my children. And I realized through meditation that my children and this young infant, my grandson, was asking me for something from me that I never got as a child. And that was really an eye-opener for me, that I realized that that's why I was angry, and I never, I never got in touch with that until eight years ago. And so for me, I have wonderful grandchildren. I have a family that loves me, and I love them. I have relationships. I've learned to stay out of other people's business and not to judge them. You know, there's only three businesses in this world. My business, your business, and God's business. Or as my spiritual teacher would say, my business, your business, and the truth. <laughs> so I've learned to do that at, at, to a much greater extent. I'm, I'm very, very grateful because God has bestowed upon me this program. He's bestowed upon me the willingness, which is the, which is the foundation to this program. Nothing happened to me into this program until I became willing to do what it took for me to, to recover. And one of uh, my sponsees said this to me. She says, to beauty and wisdom we make promises, but to pain we obey. And I had to, I had to have enough pain to obey the call of this program and what it asked me to do, and I was willing to do it. Thank you for letting me share. Okay, we will now have 10 minutes of questions from the Ask It Basket. So. Um, okay, first question is for David. Um, were there any other teens in um, the meetings when you started? Yeah, well, when I started, there was a team meeting, and there was at least six to eight people every week going to that meeting, and some of them went to regular meetings. So there were, but what we found for us, being teenagers, is that the regular meetings were not the greatest place without the fellowship of other teens, because a lot of times we got, oh, you're so cute, or what, you know, we were not treated as equals in this program, and, and things, and, and we needed that fellowship. So there were, but very few, and um, and it's sort of like nowadays. I go to a men's dag once a week because there's more women here, and that's fine. I can get recovery, but it helps to sometimes be at a meeting where I get people who have maybe the same demographic, you know, the same, some other issue that has nothing to do with compulsive overeating, but, but it does. And so it really helped having that team meeting where there were other people, and then we could go to regular meetings and deal with this stuff. Um, 
But I hope that answered the question. And to Maxine, how do you get to a normal weight and deal with other females who aren't and are constantly making comments about your weight? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I have to focus on myself. If I focus on what other people say to me and what other people think about me, uh, which I did uh, most of my life because what you thought about me was more important than what I thought about myself, um, I, I don't think I would have lost my weight. So my, my, my feeling about this is that I have to focus on what my needs are and what I'm eating and what's important to me and what other people think and what other people are saying about me um, should should not really affect me or influence me if that's possible. Because if I'm always looking at what other people are thinking about me, I'm never going to know who I am, and I'm never going to do what's, what's right for me. So um, if people are making comments about my weight, they did that all of my life, and the more people would make comments about my weight, the, the more I ate. So people don't know what goes on on the inside of my of my head, and I have to. That's where I have to focus on what's going on for me and what's right for me, rather than what other people are talking about. All right, this is for both of you. I'm just going to hand this over to you guys. So easy. Um, I've lost the bulk of my weight, but have been plateaued at about 10 to 15 pounds over where I want to be. I, I eat well. I work the steps. I call my food every day. I feel like these extra pounds are a step six, seven issue. Any thoughts? This is a, good, a very, very good question for this meeting, and probably me and Maxine have very different Opinions, but I'll give you my own thing. When I first lost my 30 pounds or so, I still had about 10, 15 pounds to go, and I had a, a, a stomach and you know love handles and whatever at 16 years old, 17 years old. Anyway, this tire, and I would look at that 10, 15 pound stomach, and it was the same as when I was 100 pounds, you know, close to 100 pounds. It, my body image was so bad, and I felt just as fat. I would look at my stomach and say, I don't see a difference. I'd look at my thighs and say, they're gigantic. You know, I had a horrible, horrible body image. And, you know, and now, now after all these years, I look at my, I mean, I've always had normal legs. Even when I was pretty fat, all my weight was in the stomach. I mean, it was so bad. But my sponsor at the time, I said, I can't lose any more weight. I'm, you know, this weight. And he said, David, the fat is between your head, not on your body. And I first thought he really meant I had a fat head. I hit you know, and then I realized, and then we talked more, and I realized he's, it's your thinking. David, you're, I look at you. You look normal weight to me. You, you're obsessing. You're, you know, and that's how I think people go from normal to anorexia in this program. It's so, because we nev it's never enough. And also, I'm a guy, and I guess, too, there's less pressure out there to be twig, you know, twig thin. So nobody else cared. Everybody thought I looked good, but I saw that role. And 
and I listened to my sponsor, and I stopped worrying about the 10, 15 pounds. And, and you know what? And then I realized I was, you know, it was fine. It was really fine. And, and, and it's not that. I'm, uh, I have to eat. If I'm happy with my absence and I'm healthy and I go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, for your age, you're so healthy, you're so young, you know, that's what's important. And you know what? I still have this little role sometimes, you know, and I go to the gym and, and I exercise and whatever. It, it's, I can't make it about that. I've got to, if I, you know, to me it's more important to be at what's healthy, what's, um, if I'm abstaining, going to meetings, listening, you know, talking to a sponsor, talking to a doctor, that's the most important. And, 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 and what happened is my body image started slowly changing where I can look at my stomach and realize it's not what it was when, you know, it's more realistic. And I can look at my legs and say, you know, they're all muscles. And, and, and to be, at this point, you know, to be a size 34 at my age, I can't, I can't wear and look like I did when I was 16, 17 years old. And, and so I'm perfectly happy now. And you know what? And I started going to the gym two years ago to add to my exercise, and now I'm down about five pounds. And that's perfect. Two, five pounds in two years is all my head can handle, you know? And, and I feel, and, and like I said, it's more about the health and, 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 uh, and my disease. Thank you. Um, a plateau is an uncomfortable place, um, and I think the, 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 what I have done for or helped people with is that usually the last 10 or 15 pounds are the hardest to lose. Um, I recently had a sponsee who had lost 100 pounds and kept saying, "I can't. I want to lose 10 more, but I, I just can't lose the 10 more," and she said. I was always told that the last 10 are the harder than, than the first 100, and I said, that's a lie, because it is a fallacy, and, you know, it's done unto us as we believe, and if you believe the last 10 or 15 pounds are going to be the hardest, they will be. And so I said, There's, and I, I, said I can really help you lose that last 10 pounds, and she says, how do, you, how, how do I do that? And I said, well, you, you already lost 100. You should know how to do this, but I'll give you the secret, and she said, I'm going to get a pencil and paper and write this down. I said, eat less and exercise more. <laughs> and she said, it can't be that simple. And I said, yes, it is. All you have to do is change one thing. Maybe walk an extra five minutes or just drop off one piece, half a piece of fruit or a slice of bread. That's, it just takes small changes. You don't have to do this big, great thing. But if you just make small changes, and what happened is instead of losing the last 10, she lost 15. And she was really surprised. So she tells all her sponsees the same thing. Okay, again, this is for both. What would you say to someone with new abstinence, early recovery regarding maintaining goal weight? I would say reach your goal first and worry about that later. Yeah, I said the same. I mean, that's not the, it's just, you know, it's one, it's one, this really program is one day at a time and you got, and you, wherever you're at, that's what you got to do that day. 
and not to worry. You really can't worry if you're new about goal, wave, whatever that is, but just abstain today, work the program, show up at meetings, work the, you know, work the, use the tools, make sure you have a sponsor. When you're new, um, you just, and it, it will come, you know, and you can't deal with your whole, you can deal with one thing at a time, one day at a time. Okay, again for both. With certain foods that still hang on as the answer, how to let go absolutely? Well, it's a choice. Um, it's like everything else in this program. Um, I don't like change, and uh, I, I like being comfortable with what I'm doing. But if I, <clears throat> if I want to have something different, I have to do something different. And I was told early on in this program that I have to do the opposite of what I, I really want to do. <clears throat> so if it's to let go of a food, uh, I have to be will, willing to look at what the, what the goal will be when I do that. And I only have to do it not forever, but one day at a time. If I can let go of that whatever that food is one day at a time. Um, when I first started to abstain and I was a carbohydrate abstainer, um, people would say to me, you're never going to eat carbohydrates again? And I said, no, I'm only going to eat, not eat carbohydrates one day at a time. And if I have to let go of something, I only let go of it one day at a time. I don't think of it being forever because forever is just one day at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, my absence in the sense, or my, I should say my food plan is very liberal, and so there's nothing that I say I can never have. And it's different than some people, the way some people have had to abstain and have, have had to have a food plan. So at this point, there's nothing I can never have, but there's been times in my absence where I had to stop eating certain foods because I knew that if I ate one bite, I would binge. I remember somebody was pitching at a meeting about Italian food and how that was their binge food, and it sounded so good that there was like, I had to stop eating Italian food for, you know, pizza and spaghetti could not be part of my absence because I couldn't handle it. I can now. I didn't, I used to binge on peanut butter as a kid, you know, eat it straight out of the jar and on bananas and stuff. And for 10, 15 years, I could not have peanut butter in my house. Somebody from OA came to visit and said, they can't have dairy. Can we buy them peanut butter so they can put on bread? And they use that as a spread and they can't have butter and stuff. And I, and I forgot, it had been so long, I forgot that I used to binge. And we had peanut butter in the house, and I started using it as a substitute on things. And now I can have peanut butter, and I don't binge on it. It's just, you know, I have a tablespoon on, slice a whole grain toast or a bagel, and that's healthier than when I used to put, ba you know, cream juice or whatever. But I go through different stages in my absence. Uh, I remember, too, having trouble with those diet desserts. You know, there used to be companies that... You know, there's not as many because it's now popular. But I remember they, they, a couple of them had to go out of business to stop, you know, um, and then that stopped it. But um, th that's just how it's worked for me, you know, that, but that it's just God, God is taking care of it one way or another. Um, but I stay here and I seem to, and, and I've, I've made it, so, yeah. Okay, um, we will now have open sharing. We will have time for three shares. If you have already shared at another workshop, please give others a chance before you come forward. Limit your shares to three minutes. 
stay on topic and sign the tape release form after you share. So hands, anyone wants to share? One, two, come on up. One more, three? Okay. My name is Kevin Compulsive Eater. Hi. Um, I think uh, <clears throat> I was in the um, Weight Watchers program where they were really heavy on the scale, pardon the pun, but they, um, you know, it's the first time I ever established a weight that was very thin for me. I also overshot my goal. I got down to 195. For me, that was underweight. Um, they established like 205 as a goal weight. Today, I don't know how much I weigh. I, um, I really don't. I haven't weighed myself in probably almost a year. And um, the reason why I do that is because I'm um, in the gym and I'm lifting weights and I want to change how I look. And so I realized that for me, a goal would be to be healthy and to look a certain way and not attach any number to it. Because I think the, you know, the composition of jello is a lot different than concrete. And they weigh differently. And I want to look like concrete. So with all that, though, I do want to say that um, I did on the way down. I lost 130 pounds this last time. And on the way down, I plateaued. And it, it's not a linear thing. It's not a straight line without any pauses. I had to stop at 50 pounds and reassess and readjust. And I got into some fear and I had to work my steps and I had to embrace that. And I had to go down again and lose another 30 or 40. And towards the end, my, my concept of self and how I looked, um, it is sort of mind-blowing. But, you know, through the program and with faith, I was able to do it, you know, in small chunks, one day at a time. But, um, you know, <clears throat> I can do maintenance 30 pounds above, you know, this weight or 50 pounds above this weight. I maintained at 100 pounds above this weight. So maintenance is just that maintenance. I get hungry every day and, um, you know, I eat. And so I'm no less or more hungry being thin than I am overweight. So I encourage anyone to have the courage to go there. It's just, um, it's different. It's healthier. It's a lot more fun. And, um, you know, so, and it is possible. I didn't think it was for me. Thanks. My name is Jerry, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Um, I just, just a couple of things. Uh, I came into the program in probably 1977 and lost all my weight to the first three steps, followed the gray sheet, and um, life was wonderful. And then some things happened that uh, frightened me. Um, I got some, some male attention. I was married. There was nothing wrong with my husband. I loved him totally. But uh, because of, you know, some, some of my family's history, it scared me to death. And uh, so I used some excuse and left the program. And then what I, I started coming back, you know, if I got too fat, then I would come back, lose weight, hit a certain number, and then panic and leave. And then... Anyway, it was just back and forth, back and forth. I've been back now for over a year. I haven't been since May 22nd, 2004. 
Uh, the weight has been slow in coming off. I've lost about a little over 20 pounds, and that's just fine with me. And I'm so glad to hear from other people that it doesn't have to be fast. It doesn't have – I mean, emotionally right now, this is about all I can handle. And so I, I'm really grateful that, you know, I can keep coming back and I don't feel judgment. And that's one of the things – every time I came back to OA – I was welcomed back with open arms, and I'm just very, very grateful for that. But I, did, I didn't write a, a question for Maxine, and I just want to sneak it in, Maxine. You said you had two daughters. Food was such a huge issue between my mother and myself. I mean, she'd give me, you know, diets, trot me to the doctor, blah, blah, blah. And it was just such a power struggle between us. And by God, she wasn't going to take my food away. <laughs> and, um, of course, with the program, I learn to, you know, my higher powers, my my stability, my relief from, you know, anxiety, whatever. But I was, I have a teenage daughter. She's 16 and a half. And I see where it is a power struggle between us. And I don't know how to, I guess, I guess, how did you, my question is, how did you let go of that and so that it didn't affect your relationship with your daughters? So, if you don't. Thank you. Hi, I'm Zach from Georgia. A grateful, recovered, not cured, compulsive overeater. Um, I came into program back in October of 1994. I came in at 23, a mother of twins, a single mother of twins with twins out of wedlock. And came in, my highest weight was probably around 250. And from that day, I've never stepped on the scale and seen that weight. And I don't know how. Um, I had some relapses. I had some slips. But I knew that I'd never not done that outside of these rooms. Um, And then in 2000, I hit a relapse of probably about 50 pounds. And I didn't go all the way back up, but it was the worst. And I heard someone say that the answers were in the big book. And if you wanted to be free, that's what you needed to do. And today I'm free. Um, The thing that I'm grateful today is that I have twin daughters who don't have an issue around food. Um, They don't know their mom bidding. They don't know their mom. You know, they see pictures and they say, well, who's this lady? That's me. You know, they they don't know that person. And today I'm grateful um, for that. I'm grateful that I didn't want to be here at 23, but it saved my life. Um, And then the last thing is that probably, I don't know, less than a year ago, um, because I've been smaller than I am now, but I I was too scared. I was too scared. I couldn't handle it. And so I went back to a, a weight that I thought was okay for me, and I maintained it. For a long time, I had a sponsor say, um, did you give your weight to God? He knows exactly the size you need to be. And if you keep saying you're comfortable, I heard someone say that you're wearing the character defect of selfishness on the outside of your body because you're not truly wanting to do God's will. And so I've probably lost another 25 pounds, and it's been the best thing to just ask God. And he gave me the number. You know, God forbid he would actually know the exact size that I need. 
to be for my body. So when I hear people say, you know, I've lost the weight and this is good enough, I ask them, have you thrown it up to God? So, thanks. And real quick, Maxine's going to answer the question. Now, did I understand the question? The question probably is that you find that it's a power struggle between you and your daughter? Well, I have, um, growing up, my, I was in OA with, when my girl, when I, my girls were growing up, um, and they used to say to me, why don't we ever have dessert? And because, because I never ate it, and so we didn't have it. Um, the only pictures you see of me, all the movies of the kids at birthday, I'm cutting the cake all the time, never ate any of it. But I let, I left my girls alone. They've had, um, uh, one of my girls had some problems with weight, but I've left them alone because I realized that their path is not my path. And I don't have, and, and the more I would, I would, because I saw what my mother did to me, and I didn't want to do that to my girls, so I've left them alone. And they've been, whatever they've wanted to do, they've done. And if they come to me and ask me, I mean, um, I've, I've found out, that I was told once that the worst vice in the world is advice. And so, um, unless they come to me and ask me, even as adults, uh, I don't, I don't offer any information. And um, anything can be a power struggle. Uh, I don't want to control anybody anymore. I have a hard enough time living, controlling my own life. And so, um, it hasn't. That particular thing hasn't been an issue for me. Okay, I want to thank our speaker, David and Maxine. And um, I want to thank all the questions and, and the, the people who shared, um, and all you for being here and for me being of service. Um, it is now time to close the workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence and then form a circle, um, followed by the third step prayer.